Today we're talking with Matt McKay about how to stay technical as a manager. But first, I want to thank PyCharm for sponsoring this episode. One tip that Matt brings up later in the episode is to use a code editor even when writing non-code items. I totally agree. I use PyCharm for almost all long-form writing I do, especially if I'm writing in Markdown. PyCharm has a split-screen mode where you can render the Markdown on one side while you're writing. It's super cool. I've used PyCharm for writing blog posts, show notes, a book. I even often write emails here first so I can use all of my plugins like the Vim plugin. I love that I can use PyCharm not just for Python and Markdown, but also HTML, TOML, YAML, shell scripts, and so much more. And the syntax highlighting and code completion is all there. If you haven't tried PyCharm, check it out with the link in the show notes and try Pro while you're at it. If you use the code PyTest, you can get 20% off the Pro Edition. And the first 10 people to use the code PyTest this month get one month of AI assistance for free. AI assistant only works with Pro, but it's super cool. Ask JetBrains AI assistant for help right in your code editor. Head to pythontest.com slash PyCharm. Thanks, PyCharm. Well, welcome to Python Test. Uh, Matt McKay is here. I met Matt many years ago. So, uh, but you're you're up to new things now. So, Matt, can you introduce yourself and let us know what you're up to? Yeah, sure. My name is Matt McKay. Um, I am the VP of Developer Relations and Developer Experience at Assembly AI. Before that, I was uh, nine plus years at Twilio, where I was also in Developer Relations, and then my entire career before uh, either Assembly AI or Twilio was as a heads down software developer. So I started out in uh, Java, Java world, uh, J2EE, a lot of uh, you know big iron uh, software projects uh, that were closely associated with uh, you know usually like mainframe transition type stuff. Um, and then I got into Python and I was like, oh my gosh, like I can hack on stuff in Python for like an hour at night and I feel more productive than nine hours a day in Java. Uh, at least at the time, the Java ecosystem was uh, kind of slow moving. So um, yeah, so that's, that's my my background. Um, also, run full stack Python and a new side project that I can I can talk about as well. Well, I'm glad that you tried Python because it really could have been any language that you tried after Java. <laughs> yeah, like and, and I, I did I did try Ruby. Ruby on Rails was super hot back then. This was like before the days of Node.js. Uh, it just didn't like quite click with me. I thought the uh, X uh, Ruby is more implicit. Python's more explicit, and I just that kind of clicked with me for some reason. So you got to kind of pick the programming language that matches your brain. Yeah, um, yeah. When early on, Perl matched my brain. I'm glad that Perl doesn't match wow. my brain anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> that one, that one also did not stick for me. So I'm, I'm impressed. I do want to talk about your your new side project, but and maybe this will shoe in. But uh, staying technical as a manager and this is um, actually this is this is very close to me because I'm I'm a technical manager. But Matt, you are you in a management or a leadership role now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, currently, I have a team uh, of seven, um, which actually I just handed off a few folks. So um, while I was at when I joined Assembly AI about a year ago, I was running marketing, uh, but we really were going for a very developer focused DevRel bent, uh, and then. Sp- sprinkled in a little like demand gen and uh, content marketing. So um, was recently managing a team of 11, but before that at Twilio, I had a team of 35. So I had managers that I was managing uh, for the individual teams. So um, been managing either in, you know, sort of the, uh, the player coach model, which I typically think of as, you know, if you're managing at most like three to four people versus a, 
sort of a pure manager where you spend the majority of your time managing, which is like often eight to 12 people. Um, so I've been manager since, I don't know, probably uh, 10, 11, maybe 12 years now. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and it's similar situation to you, uh, many of those times where, you know, I'm, I'm both coding and, and doing a lot of code reviews and things like that, as well as, uh, managing as well, which is a, a tough balance. I'm a, I've been in management for probably about the same time you have really. Um, it is always a fear. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm interested in this topic is, to even if I were to to like leave leave a lot of the technical stuff to other people, um, that at some point there's going to be a shrinkage and they don't need as many managers, and now I'm not one of the top coders anymore. So, ha- yeah, that's one of the fears of being a especially a lower level manager is that um, you're going to let everybody else pass you technically. And then you're not one of the obvious people to keep around when layoffs come. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, and then also, uh, trying to find another job. So, um, it's difficult, uh, finding a job because people, there's a, there's a lot of times where people are like, Oh, well, you're a manager. We don't have any manager roles. I I, I can, I'm okay with being an engineer too. Well, Yeah. yeah, but you're not right now. So, um, things like that. So how do you stay technical as a manager, Matt? Sure. Well, let's let's just take a, a little bit of a step back, which is just like obviously this is an incredibly pertinent topic as we've had just this hundreds of thousands of layoffs across the software ecosystem over the past like you know eighteen to twenty four months, and there probably will be more the first half of this year. It's 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 a very diff- I would I would I would say that most people I've talked to have said that this is much more like a two thousand one kind of dot com crash. Um, situation for for layoffs as opposed to even great financial crisis wasn't necessarily even as bad um, as it is right now. Um, so that's kind of saying like I think in a lot of cases like you really can't prevent getting laid off. Uh, a lot of times it's really just like a numbers game, and so I think a lot of times people take it really personally. Um, I do think there's things that you can try to do to stack things in your favor a little bit, and so this goes to like your point of like you know. Y- 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 if you think that you're going to like lose out in coding to someone who's like newer, I actually think what matters uh, a lot more. And I say this as someone who's like gone through layoffs myself is like, is somebody like just wildly valuable to the business. And obviously skills coding is one of many skill sets. Um, and typically if you combine multiple skill sets, like, uh, this is what, you know, developer relations is, is a lot about. It's like, you are not only coding applications, but you're also writing technical tutorials or you're creating YouTube videos or you're giving a talk at PyCon. Um, it's the combination of those skills that are rare. And so if a company really needs that for its business and knows that it's going to be extremely difficult to replace you, that gives you a little bit more job security. But again, it, sometimes they just decide to cut teams arbitrarily. So um, I do think that like coding, I would look at coding as like one of many skills that you can, uh, you know, kind of try to stack the deck in your favor. But, uh, you know, it's been a tough time in the industry. Like, I don't think anybody should ever take it personally that they got like laid off. Like I got laid off from Twilio. Uh, it actually turned out to be awesome for me, but I'm very fortunate that I just happened to be in, you know, a little bit of the right place at the right time um, when it happened. Um, and I was, I was ready for it, but it's, you know, um, Anyway, so I think coding is one of these things. So like going back to your original question of like, you know, how do I stay up to date with coding? Um, the big thing for me is like, I work on in my, in my spare time. Um, and I have a family and everything like, you know, like I, I don't have like a ton of spare time. I tend to like do a little bit of this in the mornings before like my son wakes up. Um, but 
Like I work on generic versions of a problem that I face. Um, and so what that allows me to do is like think about things in a way that uh, are separate from the particular details that I face like at the company. Um, so let me give you like two examples because like both of my side projects have essentially been in this model. So I worked on full stack Python for about 10 years, I'm taking a bit of a break from it. I will go back to it eventually. But it was like, uh, I wanted to make sure that I really understood the full scope of the Python ecosystem as a when I was a developer evangelist at Twilio and still a software developer. And so I would just write, uh, you know, pages and, and find the best articles on a new web uh, frame web application framework that was coming out or a new uh, database that had come out. Like the time between 2007 uh, and 2000, even, even up until recently, the explosion in the number of technologies around like web development in, in the Python ecosystem was like, it was really hard to keep up. And so I just used my side project as a forcing function that I would keep up with all of that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and the coding part of it was like, you know, Jinja templates and I was using Pelican to create a static site. And I would like, you know, it wasn't super coding heavy, but it was enough to like keep me, uh, you know, really familiar with my tools. And I think that's, that's one component to it is like, if you want to still be able to code, even as you go into management, like, yeah, you're going to have to spend some time on the side, just like most software developers do, um, in order to like make that possible. And if you work on something that is going to make you better at your job, um, but is like separate from your job. So you can think about things in a little bit different way and doesn't, you know, you don't want to just be working on work as your side project. You want to be working on, I think like an abstract problem. Um, that's kind of how I, I tend to approach it. Um, and there's a bunch of like tactical stuff we can talk about as well, but that's like my conceptual framework. And I have a, a new side project called PlushCap. It's plushcap.com. It allows me to see the landscape of every developer focused company that's out there and how they're, investing in their docs, how they're writing blog posts, how their YouTube channel is doing. So I can see every single company and how they're doing from publicly traded company all the way down to a pre-seed company. Um, and then I can say, oh, that tactic is working really well. Maybe we should experiment with that on my team. So you can kind of, you can self sort of learn from others. Um, and I do that through the tool that I created. We may need to have you back on and just talk about plush cap at some point. Um, cause that sounds fascinating. And I don't, I think I've got like 20 questions around it. So okay, um, one of the ways places where I, I looked at, uh, trying to stay technical and I, and I've heard this before is to have it be something completely different than your, your normal day job. Uh, like, uh, trying to, I don't know, um, do a, a forum for one of your hobbies or something like that. Um, but I love this idea of uh, generic versions of a problem that you're working at on your company. Um, it's a, it's something that when I was, um, when I started writing about testing, uh, the, I was definitely thinking of, of problems I had at work and trying to solve them, but I wanted to do it open in the open and I couldn't do that. I can't write the problem down. Well, one uh, like that I'm facing at work because it's a, uh, it's, it's, intellectual property i can't share that right um but also it would be boring for everybody it's a it's it's usually a, like super deep detail into something that only we care about um or a few other people do but that's not the part that's not the point of the problem the problem is some sort of uh software uh architecture problem that has nothing to do with the domain it's like um like uh for instance um uh the on with the with testing the 
the early on I, I had a need to have multiple checks. So I, I wrote a plugin called PyTest Check that I still maintain that is uh, normally in, in all tests, you can only assert once. If it fails, it stops. And I, I needed to have more. We needed that in work for waveforms um, because we've got like, you know, both a, a bandwidth and frequency and other things you need to check. And I don't want to stop checking if one of them fails. I want to see the whole picture. But I knew that that was going to be generic enough for other people. So trying to solve that in public. Also, I didn't know how to solve it. So solving it in public and writing blog posts and everything helped um, have other people come on to to correct me and say, oh, have you thought about doing this? Um, and that's how I started getting in touch with some of the core contributors at PyTest uh, because they were the, some of the best people to say, oh, yeah, this doesn't work because of this. And you should look at this internal variable um, and that'll help. So when you were writing full stack, um, did you have uh, a lot of feedback from people? Would, would people contact you and say, and you're, you're in left field, man, you, you, you're wrong about this. Or did you get very many corrections? Uh, yeah, I mean, quite a bit. I mean, uh, I think the thing that helps there is like, and I think basically this is, it seems like matches your, your, um, experience as well is like, if you just try to approach things in a way that like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm, I'm also learning at the same time. Like I'm not the definitive, you know, like I have enough experience to be able to write in a neutral, but still like enter entertaining way about a topic, like informed enough, but also with the humility that like, Hey, like I actually don't know everything. And I very much like welcome feedback. I think that is often what helps to differentiate projects where people will give you like valuable feedback versus just being kind of a jerk. Um, you know, cause if you say, if you're kind of putting yourself out there as like, I know everything already, like then I think you just open yourself up a little bit more to like people that are like, you know, disagree with you. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think on, on full stack, I definitely, um, you know, got a lot of feedback along the way. Um, you know, a lot of what was really helpful was actually like, I, I, you know, I work on it every single day. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you get some interesting feedback through social media, but like a lot of times it's like going to PyCon and just like talking to people and being like, Oh, I built this thing. Like, what do you think about this? And then like, they would take a look and email me back like a, a couple of weeks later and be like, Hey, I read through your stuff, like, and give me feedback. So I think it's a combination of like, I, I personally really like the fact like you get some feedback online, but also if you bring that into conversations in an appropriate, like in the appropriate conversations, like people also give you really good feedback um, through that as well. Yeah. I'm, I, would you have, so you, you started full stack um, when you, as you were in a full-time engineer, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Back in 2012. Yeah. Um, in fact, like the reason, the reason why I did was because like I was home for the holidays uh, and, uh, this was when I was like still pretty young and young and single and, uh, no like family or anything. And I just like went on a, uh, coding like bender because I had just like done all of this, like Python stuff, like deployment related stuff. And the full stack Python started out as like a, almost completely deployment related information. And I really just wanted to get it out of my brain. It was like a way of like me relaxing during like the holidays it was just like, I have all this stuff that's rattling in my brain. I'm just going to put it down on, on paper and publish it online. And then it just kind of like snowballed from there. So yeah, I was a, I was a full-time developer when I actually started it. Well, you, you brought up one of the things of keeping, keeping up, uh, trying to make yourself less easy to lay off is, is having more than one skill, having skills in not just coding, but also, uh, communication and public speaking and, um, and you know, teaching, uh, right. Writing, um, 
do you think that your involvement with uh with full stack python and with speaking at conferences and things like that led you to be somebody that would make a good developer relations person um yeah definitely so i and and um that was one of the reasons why like uh twilio originally hired me i was i was a developer evangelist for them twilio was still pretty small they didn't have a they had a few developer evangelists but that was kind of their primary marketing um efforts in order to market to developers to use the api so it was yeah, I was like, you know, doing a lot of writing and, and speaking, but I was still, you know, 90% of my time was spent coding. It's kind of the perfect uh, match for what you want in someone who is a potential like developer evangelist, developer educator. I, those skills, I, I didn't think that I would value at work as much, um, but it, but I do. The, uh, I knew I wanted to be able to do public speaking more and uh, to write better. So uh, blogging, podcasting, speaking at conferences, something I wanted to do on my f- side f- projects um, and just to get involved with Python. But it, it turned out to that it has helped me at work. I'm a better, I'm a better speaker at work. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to talk at a, at a meeting or anything like that. Um, you, it doesn't even matter who's there. The, the, some of the, the large managers can be there and I can stand up and talk without sweating too much. I think that that's comes from a lot of my involvement with the open source community. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, were you, before you were a manager of like up to tons of people, were you somebody that was comfortable with, uh, with leadership or with public speaking or was that something you learned? Um, Certainly the public speaking, but I think, you know, to be a really good manager, you have to be, uh, just, constantly intentional about uh wanting to be a really great manager and and to be fair like i actually didn't particularly want to be a manager like i thought i would just be an individual contributor um i just i just mostly like once i had the opportunities i was like you either have to grab a hold of them or not right and i think uh, for better or worse like a lot of managers kind of go into management because that's kind of where they're pushed, but they don't really want to take that opportunity and be amazing at it. And I still have a ton to learn. Um, but like, I am extremely intentional about the way that I manage. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I want to be a really good manager in addition to still having all my technical skill set. Um, I, I'm not sure I necessarily see that same desire from every manager. I think, some of the, uh, you know, unfortunately, some of the, the the weaker managers that I've I have personally had in my career are the ones that think that because they got the title, now they make all the decisions. Uh, <laughs> when in fact, like that's typically like not how things work, right? Uh, which is why, like, I've I've been very intentional about you know studying servant leadership and what are the right ways to manage folks that are particularly technically talented and and. Um, uh, creative, uh, you know, there's different management styles, but you also have to like kind of know your own personal preferences and things like that, and kind of come up with something that works, um, for you and the people that report to you and the team that you have at that time. So, um, all there's like uh, so many variables in management. And I think that is a one big thing that people have to recognize is like, there's, um, you know, there's different ways that you need to approach this problem, just like you need to approach different architectures, you know, technical architectures or whatever. And I, these are not like, I am a manager, I know how to manage. Like you don't, you may know how to manage in like one for slice 
of a situation of a team and completely not know how to manage in, in other situations. So there's like definitely a self-awareness component to it as well. Well, I want to bring up the, the, a management style that uh, grates on me is maybe it's not a style, but the managers that actively try to make sure they look like the smartest person in the room, either just take credit or just dismiss that some of the accomplishments of the people that are working for them uh, because they want, they want to be looked at seen as the superstar. Well, and I think that's actually how you become a better manager. If you want to be a better manager is you just think about those traits and why they were so grating uh, and why they actually caused you as, as an individual contributor to do worse work, like not act. It has the opposite effect, right? I know that when I highlight the accomplishments of, of folks that report to me or different teams or things like that, that makes them want to do like more of that. It makes them want to be better, right? Because they recognize, they get recognized for their accomplishments as opposed to feeling like somehow someone else is going to take the credit for that. Um, but you also have to have the right culture. I mean, some companies have such, you know, sort of like toxic cultures where even that type of uh, thing is n- not possible. But I don't know. I think that also feeds into like, I want to work at places where I can recognize other people and they get recognized for, for the things that they do. Um, and everyone feels good about that situation. Like I can deflect any sort of credit onto the people that truly did the work. Um, and, and that is how, you know, I think you create a much better company culture, culture overall, where people are actually, um, uh, happy and productive. Yeah. So, um, is, does plush cap, um, the, the technologies behind that line up in any way with what you do, uh, on a day-to-day basis or. Um, sure. So I do, um, I would say yes. So it's, it plush cap is built in Python Django. Um, I, you, I deploy it to, to, um, you know, just a virtual private server. I use Ansible, uh, a lot of like, sort of like tried and true tools. So my opinion when I, and, and again, like everyone kind of has to develop their own style, but when I use side projects, um, I actually tend to use like the same tools that I know. So I'm using, you know, my code editors, Vim and Tmux, which I've been using for 15 plus years. Uh, you know, Django, which uh, amazingly I've been using for 15 plus years, still a unbelievable framework. Uh, obviously Python, I continue to increment on the versions. I've gone from Python two to Python three, uh, you know, all that. And now I'm taking advantage of like Python, you know, 3.10, 3.11. Um, so, so incrementally I'm learning through, uh, some of these tools as they, you know, uh, like Django just went, what, five, five Oh, or whatever it is. So I'm still keeping up with the tools, but they tend to be the same tools that I use consistently. So it's, I think that in some ecosystems, this might actually be a really difficult thing to do. Um, so for example, like in iOS, like I actually think you need to spend a lot more time, uh, learning Swift and iOS and keeping up with it that may make it actually really hard to do on the side. But for me, for PlushCap, it's a Python stack. And then I add tools in that I think are going to be uniquely relevant um, and, and often do uh, correspond to my job. So for example, um, there's a tool called Olama. Um, it's a way to run uh, large language models um, on your local system. Um, and I run like the um, the Dolphin version of like Mixtral uh, seven, eight times 7 billion parameter model, uh, locally. And I actually use that to create, um, uh, summaries, uh, for, um, blog posts. So plush cap basically takes in 
all of the public data and information, blog posts, site structure, YouTube videos, all sorts of things, and basically creates a profile for various companies. Um, and so, and part of that, I take all the blog posts. So I've, I have a database of like tens of thousands of blog posts that companies have written, um, and I'll create summaries for each one. So I actually run those through a local large language model and I'll create a summary out the other side. So you can take like a 5,000 word blog post and just distill it into a single paragraph that will give you the gist of that, that whole thing, right? So that way you're actually able to consume, I, I can actually consume like the fire hose from hundreds of companies and actually understand what they're working on and what they're doing. So that's how I like mix in tools that are relevant, that are new, um, that actually give me like an understanding of like, kind of like, you know, they actually help do help me at work to be better because I understand how, you know, this, this particular LLM um, is, is valuable for certain things and not for others. That's pretty cool. Uh, is PlushCap a, just a private thing or is it available? For it's, other people? it's available. It's, it's plushcap.com. Okay. Um, and uh, it's, you'll just see, it's like a database of all these different companies, you know, and you can um, uh, sort of sort them by different categories and click into them and see their blog content and things like that. So, um, for me, I use it actually mostly to, I use it uh, in part because I, that's actually how I operate my teams. I can say like, you know, Hey, we want to publish like X number of blog posts. And, um, you know, like you know, it, it basically gives me enough metrics uh, of what I call input metrics, like input into like how much our team should be producing, um, that then I can combine that with our, you know, proprietary metrics and really make sure that the team is like operating, um, according to like, uh, the way that we, we need to run the business and actually drive the business results. So, yeah. Any, uh, any sneak peek at some of the answers? If I, if I've got a limited amount of time, should I write blog posts? Should I go on YouTube? Um, Oh, for actually doing developer relations stuff. Yeah. (laughs) What's the, what's the biggest bang for the buck right now? Um, Okay, so this is my personal opinion, and uh, you know, but I think each company really only gets to be known for like one thing, and so you got to figure out what your thing is as a company if you want to be an exceptional company. So for Twilio, it was developer events. I went to eighty six developer events in twenty fourteen, my first year. We did five hundred events that year. So like Twilio just became known for like you meet a Twilio developer evangelist at PyCon or at a meetup or wherever, right? You know somebody personally from the company. Stripe became known for their like exceptional developer docs. Um, eventually, like Twilio actually became even better known for uh, like a lot of the developer content, particularly as we like enter the pandemic. Assembly AI is known really well for our YouTube channel. So there's actually a list of all the top YouTube channels by subscriber count and view count uh, on PlushCap. And Assembly AI is like, you know, basically like the only companies that have more are like JetBrains has a little bit more of subscribers, the big three clouds, OpenAI, and that's basically it. Like all the publicly traded developer focused companies don't particularly have uh, great YouTube presences. Hmm. Um, And so like, you just have to pick the thing that you want to be really great at and orient the team to make sure that they're driving the results that you want out the other side with with that tactic. And then you can layer in other tactics. Like we do a lot of work on our docs. We do a lot of written content, but we're really, really well known for the YouTube content. That's what like I'm constantly talking to other companies about. Like they're like, how do you how are you doing like this YouTube content? It's like, well, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff, but that's what we want to be the best at. Yeah. Well like for a while, I don't know if they're still like this, but DigitalOcean was into 
like user documentation uh, for a long time. That was, yeah, that was actually the example that I, I meant to bring up as well. So they actually mentioned their uh, tutorials in their S1 filing when they IPO'd. They said, you know, we have 3,000 plus tutorials, they drive X amount of traffic, and this is actually something that powers our business. Um, which is kind of interesting considering they like, I believe laid off that whole team fairly recently. <laughs> I wasn't uh, going to bring so, it up, but I was like, yeah, Oh my I'm God, not, that's, that's, that's why you're known right now. Why? Would yeah, you exactly. Um, exactly. But, so yeah, I don't know. They're, they're struggling a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. Still, still, and I don't want to diss them too much. I, I don't know what the internal decision on that was for, but yuck. Anyway. Um, uh, okay. So, uh, very interesting. So trying to be known for one thing. So, well, I th actually for individual, like a small company, just one person or a handful, um, mm -hmm. actually usually just one or two or two friends or something doing something, you can't spread yourself too thin. So I like that idea right. of like, just pick what you're going to do. Is it going to be, you know, focused on videos? Like uh, a good example is um, uh, fast AI um, or fast, fast API. Sorry. Um, um he was just really great at awesome documentation. Uh, there, you shouldn't have a question because it's Sebastian's going to have the answer right there. Um, he, I don't know if he was doing YouTube videos. If he was, I wasn't paying attention. And uh, um, he does show up at like conferences and stuff. But having the the just the nailed documentation, um, right, was part of his growth. I think so. Yeah, especially as an open source project, like the, the docs are exceptional. People are going to notice that, right? Because a lot of a lot of projects, unfortunately, don't always get that right. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, writing uh, you you did your stint. You're, you're still writing some. I'm, I imagine it's hard to stop writing once you start writing. Um, uh, are you still like posting or blogging or anything uh, lately? Or um, not as much lately. I will get back to it. Um, frankly, I've just been spending so much time coding and really enjoying that. Uh, and it basically absorbs all of my, my, my own time. I think the other thing too, is like, we're, um, you know, undergoing this dramatic shift in what is possible with software right now by using large language models, even things like assembly AIs, like, uh, uh automated speech recognition, ASR, like, uh, just the, what is possible now is like so different than it was five years ago. Like the only thing that I can even compare this time, this, the excitement of this time to is like when like Ruby on Rails and Django kind of came out and I was like, oh my gosh, I can build web apps like so much easier. This is amazing. Right. Or maybe like when like iOS, you could start building like mobile apps and things like that. That was like amazing. But like now like large language models truly are creating like a very different uh, computing model. Um, and so I just spent a lot, I spent a lot of my time like evaluating LLMs, learning about prompting, frankly, like watching others. Like sometimes you have something to share when you want, when you feel like you have enough that's like known and other people aren't talking about it. Uh, and that's why I like wrote full stack Python originally. But right now, like I'm still spending so much time learning and actually doing this stuff myself. Uh, until I eventually get to the point where like, I, I have more to share on the topic. So I think, um, you know, like kind of like what you talked about earlier, like, you know, you kind of have to do the work for a while before you feel confident in that you're, sh what you're sharing is like the right, the right thing that you have something of value um, to provide to other people. So um, yeah. So the short answer is like right now, spending a ton of time on with LLMs, working on plush cap, tons of time coding, uh, coding plus LLMs. And uh, eventually I'll shift back into a mode where I'm writing a little bit more. 
I think that'll actually be a little bit more on the developer experience angle because that's actually where I have much stronger opinions right now versus like pure programming, which was like sort of like full full stack Python side. I think it's fascinating to just like sign up for developer services, particularly like these. Um, there's a lot of these machine learning platforms, like just like going through and just like studying, like how do they do developer experience, the good, the bad. You know, there's a lot oh. of lessons to take away and learn. That's actually probably where I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit of the itch to share a little bit more. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously something I think about a lot at leading developer experience, uh, for assembly AI. So, uh, that's hopefully where, uh, and I, maybe it'll be written, but it might also be YouTube stuff because I have this incredible team doing YouTube content and I don't do, uh, anything myself. So I feel like for <laughs> credibility with the team, I got to do a little bit more, uh, uh, well, YouTube content. How, um, I hope you don't mind me asking, but how how much like uh, large language model stuff goes into creating content? Um, are you using it for like generating first drafts for blog posts or um, um, like that? I don't think anybody on the team does. Um, you know, a lot of it just comes down to the fact like large language models are good, uh, can be good at um, creating outlines or like brainstorming and they're good at summarization, but they are not particularly good at, uh, or at least like it takes a lot of effort to get them to be good at, um, like the more to be technically accurate and creative. Right. Um, and I still think that like eventually they'll probably get there, but like the type of content that, uh, we're doing on developer relations is very like, you know, step-by-step -step developer tutorials, or it's extremely deep dives into theoretical concepts. Like I have a, you know, PhD in, in theoretical mathematics on my team, right? Like he goes into machine learning topics in like 6,000 word blog posts, yeah. theoretical, theoretical wow. explanation that is distilled from academic papers into something that a developer can read and start to understand, right? That type of stuff is like, I would say beyond the capabilities of LLMs being able to do in a way that is like, you could probably get something out the other side, but it's not going to be like, it's not going to be amazing. And like, I think right now there's like a flight to quality. Like you can tell when you're reading. Yeah. Well, you can tell when you're reading like boring stuff. It doesn't matter what's created by written by human or created by an LLM. Right now I've not found that LLMs uh, other than like creative, uh, creative writing, like fiction stuff, I haven't found LLM output to be exceptionally engaging when it comes to like nonfiction topics or technical topics. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have read it and I just haven't, uh, you know, been like, wowed. I didn't know that I was being wowed by something, but that that's kind of still, I think, uh, uh, ahead of us. Well, also just, I think good writing is rare still. So if you're reading, the odds sure. are it's bad writing. Um, yeah. De decent chance. Yeah. But, yeah, I think so. And like, if you want your company to be differentiated and exceptional for particularly for developers who are an extremely discerning audience, uh, you have to um, not think about how do we publish 100 blog posts uh, per month, uh, but think about how do we make sure that every single blog post that goes out has tremendous amounts of value to someone who is going to like read that. Um, and there's obviously different types of content that you need to produce and not everything is going to be a 6,000 word blog post. Um, but, uh, that I think is actually what is going to differentiate companies now because it's just so easy to use an LLM to produce like garbage. Um, and the differentiation on top is really what sets, sets really great companies apart. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I, I we kind of talked about a lot of stuff, but I want to, 
maybe try to summarize a few things for people to to look at if they're if they're in management they want to stay technical. One of the things yeah. you said was uh, uh, on the side doing generic versions of problems that you use at your company anyway. Um, yeah. I think still like writing technical uh, blog posts is a good thing. Um, and if 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 you haven't done it before, then I mean anybody that hasn't written openly before should try it. I think um, I think it's a good way to stay technical, and I th- think even myself, I probably I I write way less open blog posts than I used to, um, but the experience of doing it, at least in the past, has made it so that that's how I think now. I I think in right. terms of do I know it enough to explain it to somebody else, um, whether it's YouTube or uh, or or blog post or something, um, and yeah. then side projects of actually. Do I know this enough to actually have a completed thing that that other people can use also? Or even if it's just that I can use, um, there's nothing wrong with side projects that you're the solo user for. So uh, I think that's good. Right, exactly. The other thing was was making sure that you're not just thinking about coding skills, but also thinking about things like like, uh, writing and speaking and just communication skills and people skills and management. Uh, you can always be improve your style as a manager. Um, anything else that we should throw out there is uh, I had a, I had just a few quick tactical tips, which is like, uh, I think you also have to like know yourself. So if you're constantly like bashing your head against the wall, like, and you're frustrated because you like, I want to be a better writer, but you just don't want to do it. Like maybe don't put the pressure on yourself to do that. Yeah. Maybe there's something else that you want to improve. So I think improve like, so for me, I think the the big thing that whether you want to work on some side projects or you want to be, you know, coding in addition to managing is like just having something every day that you can accomplish. So for me, like I really enjoy getting up in the morning. I, I tech, tend to wake up pretty early and I just write a little bit of code. It's like the first thing I do because I'm not distracted. And uh, sometimes I write code for two minutes and sometimes I write code for an hour, uh, you know, before my son wakes up and I've just... I'm done for the day. So I think just having something every day that you can accomplish. I think I've actually also, just to get back to like the, the real technical angle, there is a tremendous advantage in having a really quick deployment pipeline. So I deploy plush cap like changes to it every single day. Um, mm. And it's because it's like one command. It's like deploy, 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 right? So if I have an idea and I have enough time to code something in the morning, I can immediately deploy it and go send it to a bunch of people. Because there's people that I you know, have as friends that, or, or colleagues that use the tool. Um, and so for me, like, that's a, like an, almost like a little bit of like an adrenaline rush is like, can I finish this little feature and like send it to people before like the start of the day, my like actual day starts. So I'm, that only comes with having a really easy deployment pipeline. Um, and then the one other uh, tip I have for people, particularly if you're like a manager and you want to keep up with your coding skills is like, I actually take all of my notes, um, in Vim, uh, and that allows me to just have the muscle memory. Uh, so I like all my notes for like my one-on-ones, uh, to-do lists, like anything is like in Markdown in, and I just use them for everything. Right. So when I'm like going and coding, like I don't have to like, like there's no, um, context switching, like I'm encoding and writing to me are like almost to some extent interchangeable. So that way, like, I'm just, I'm always fluent in my tools. Um, so I think that actually is like, you just want to make sure there's like no impediments to you just being able to do this stuff. Uh, on your own, right? Like if, okay. if you have to overcome five hurdles in order to work on a side project at night, you're, you're probably going to most of the time fail at the third hurdle. So just don't have any hurdles, just do it. 
I don't know how I overcame this, but it used to be that like Outlook would close a window if you hit escape. Um, and uh, I think that maybe I've overridden that or something, but being a v- Vim user uh, or VI, I, so I haven't actually used VI directly for, well, I use it like if I'm SSHing into something. Um, yeah. But normally it's either VS Code or PyCharm in Vim mode. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I I all of my writings in Markdown and and VI too. So so you're you're already doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, we could talk on this subject for a long time, but I want to wrap things up. Thanks a lot, Matt, for uh, for coming on the show. And uh, thanks for having me, Brian. We'll talk to you later. Sounds good. Thank you, PyCharm, for sponsoring this episode. Head to pythontest.com slash PyCharm to see how easy it is to run PyTest in PyCharm. Then go to jetbrains.com slash PyCharm and use code PyTest to get 20% off pro. And for the first 10 this month, grab a free month of AI assistant. If you want to learn PyTest, get better at PyTest, or just want to be the most efficient you can be at automated testing, head to courses.pythontest.com for the complete PyTest course. Thank you, Patreon supporters. You rock. That's all for now. Now go out and test something.